0: We're going to be in verses 27 through 29 today. Um, I don't know if you guys have been watching the news uh, at all this week, but um, good old Mickey Mouse Disney seems to have hit the jackpot with their latest movie they have in the box office. Anybody aware of a a small, low-budget movie titled Avengers Infinity War? Anybody heard of this? seen this at all. If you've seen it, and you utter a single word of what happens, I will come get you. I have not not yet seen it. Jesse, I'm coming for you. Um, I I really want to see it. Uh, it, It's by all accounts supposedly a great movie, Uh, and I told myself many years ago I'm not going to be one of those pastors that uses comic book illustrations, but then I got older and kept realizing how much good literature there is. Uh, in them. And one of my favorite characters in the Avengers is a guy named Tony Stark that most of you know him as, Iron Man. Um, And in the very first uh, Iron Man movie, you know, long story short, um, he's like every superhero. He has kind of a beginning of his story that crazy things happen. He almost dies. And through his intelligence and vast financial resources, he builds this suit that lets him basically fight anything. He turns himself into just a big old machine of war. Those of you who know war machine, don't judge me for using those words. But Tony Stark puts on this suit that covers him up, and he becomes Iron Man, able to fight and battle anything and usually to win. And at the end of Iron Man, there's this big discussion, and he's about to call this news conference, and everybody's wondering if Tony Stark is about to shed any light on who Iron Man might be because at this point nobody knows who Iron Man is. And it's one of the most famous scenes in every Marvel movie Is Tony Stark steps up to the podium and he's about to give an announcement and explain away where he's been and what's been going on and preserve his secret identity and finally says, you know what, I am Iron Man. And the cameras start clicking and everybody's like, he has no secret identity anymore. That he is Iron Man. He is this superhero. He is this amazing character. And he revels in the fame. And he shows up. And oh, everybody's singing his praises. And everything's great. And oh, it's wonderful to be famous. It's wonderful to be Iron Man. But then a few movies go by. And he realizes that. Man, maybe I'm not really as much as I thought I was until finally in one movie, somebody says, you're Iron Man. He goes, stop telling me that. I'm not a superhero. I'm just a man in a can. I'm not special. I'm just a regular dude who happened to have the resources to put on something that made me more than I am. Without what I've put on, I'm no different than anybody else. Interestingly enough, this might be the one instance of history where the fictional comic book character Tony Stark and the real life Apostle Paul said the same thing. In Galatians 3 verse 27 through 29, Paul says, we put on Christ. Do you know what it means to put on Christ? In the same way that Tony Stark, when he didn't put on his armor, he's just a guy. He can't do anything. He can't win any fights. He doesn't have anything to bring to a war of cosmic proportions. But when he puts on that suit, buddy, he can take on anybody. In the same way, we as Christians, if we have not put on Christ, we as people, if we have not put on Christ, we're in a cosmic battle and you bring nothing to the table. You can't hope for a victory. But if you put on Christ, you are something far more than just you. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read verses 27-29. through Just three verses today. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to put on Christ. Lord, that you take me, who are nothing, who am nothing, I I am nothing, you take me. And you give me your righteousness. You give me your goodness. Me who possess, I who possess nothing of my own, you give me everything. And Father, I thank you that you are not just willing to do that with me, that I'm just one of many that you are willing to do that for, and that there are some here today who need to put on Christ and become more than what they are. So Lord, I thank you that you've given us the privilege and opportunity to do that. Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I titled my sermon today, The Ground is Level at the Cross. Because, y'all, it is. Um, what do I mean by that? Hopefully you'll see at the end of today that I mean that when a person has put on Christ, that supersedes every other identity and truth about them that there is. That once a person has put on Christ, that is their definitive identification. Identification. Wants to start in verse 27 and say, everyone who comes to Christ receives the same life. Paul starts out by saying, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Alright, now y'all pause. We are Stapleton What Church? Baptist. That means I'm going to talk about baptism, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I'm laughing too. It is, but thank you. That's encouraging. Um, Stapleton Baptist Church. If Paul's going to use the word baptized, I have to make sure we understand what baptism is so that we don't misinterpret what Paul is saying. First off, we've got to ask the question, what is baptism? And then we've got to ask what he means when he says baptized into Christ. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because this is not a passage about baptism. Um, First, let's start out talking about what baptism is not. Baptism is not asterisk, bold, underline, star, cover it with your highlighter if you want to, if you're taking notes. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Okay? It is not a requirement for salvation. It does not wash your sins away. Okay? I don't have anything special i not going to spoil anything, but we're going to have a baptism soon-ish. When we run this water up here, I don't have something special in my office labeled sin detergent that I drop in the water. And when somebody steps into the water and they go under and come out, I have not washed their sins away from them. We all know one line of a hymn at least. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It it does not say what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the water in the baptistry. It doesn't say that. There's a reason for that. It does not wash away your sin. What is it? It is an outward display of an inward reality. If you're married today, look down at your wedding ring. Okay, A wedding ring is kind of like baptism. If I take somebody who's not married and they get a wedding ring and they shove it on their finger, are they any more married after putting that ring on than they were before they did? No, they're not. Just putting on a ring doesn't make you married. It's deceptive. Okay? But... If you take a couple who have gone through the, the ceremony of marriage and they have taken vows to each other and they have appropriately gone through all the channels needed and they are a lawfully wedded couple, then a wedding ring means something, doesn't it? Now, a wedding ring is a symbol of everything that has occurred that ties those two people together. A wedding ring is a symbol of an inward reality that you can see on the outside. That is exactly what baptism is. It functions the exact same way. That if you have not trusted Jesus Christ and you get dunked in the water, do you know what happened to you? You got wet. That's all that happened. That's it. Your sins have not been washed away. You have not received some spiritual benefit. There was a Carrie Underwood song a a couple years ago. There must have been something in the water. No, Carrie, there wasn't. There's nothing in the water. Except maybe you and the preacher who didn't teach you what baptism was. There's nothing in the water. But if a person has come to Christ... If they've come to Him and said, Father, I am a sinner, I need forgiveness, wash me in the blood of your Son, forgive me, make me one of your own, then what Jesus commands is that you publicly identify with Him through baptism. So that when I put you under the water, that's a picture of being buried with Christ, When I bring you out of the water, that's a picture of being raised with Christ. And that preaches the gospel to everybody who sees it. That's what baptism is. It's not not part of your salvation. It's just a picture of what happened that has given you salvation. So that's what Paul means when he uses the word baptized. Okay. So now, what does he mean when he says baptized into Christ? Obviously, Christ is not a baptistry that you don't dunk somebody into Jesus. Let me tell you what function baptism served in the period of time in which the Bible was written. Um, when there, there was an event called the Diaspora, that was when a lot of the Jews who were in the Holy Land got spread out over the known world. Um, the Roman government kind of scattered them because they were, you know, prone to rebellion. Um, This has happened several times throughout history. But when at the Diaspora, numerous Gentiles sought admission to Israel, uh, they required public repentance and acceptance of Mosaic law, and it was accompanied by immersion in water symbolizing and affecting religious, moral, and ritual cleansing from the defilements of paganism. So what the Jews expected these Gentiles to do who wanted to become Jews is they would require them to publicly renounce their paganism and publicly identify with the Jewish nation. So they would say, we are going to put you in here and you are going to symbolically wash away your last life Symbolically. And when you come out, you're going to be part of this new community. Now this was Jewish baptism, not Christian baptism. But the idea behind it is the same. That you are publicly identifying with a new community of faith. And you are leaving your old community behind. So, Paul is saying when you are baptized into Christ... What you are doing is you are leaving behind your old life and you are entering a new life with the community of faith in Jesus Christ. And then if you want to, if you just want to say, well, pastor, I've always been told that baptism washes away my sins. Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, this is on your handout. There's also an antitype, which now saves us, baptism not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when someone comes to Jesus Christ, they are baptized in obedience to Him. Not so that their sins will be washed away. The blood of Jesus has already done that. But their good conscience toward God that seeks to obey Him will follow His command and make that public through baptism. It is an outward symbol. Paul says if you've been baptized into Christ, you have publicly identified with him as a response to what he has done on your inside. So, everyone who has baptized Christ, Paul says, verse 27, has put on Christ. Anyone who has been baptized into Christ has been put on Christ. This is an interesting phrase. What does it mean to have put on Christ? Well, what does that mean to have put on your clothes? It covers you. It's what people see when they see you. When you put on Christ, He covers up what you were before. Paul uses this again in Romans 13, 12-14. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Because see, here's what happens. Before you come to Jesus Christ, your life is run by what we call, what the Bible calls, the flesh. What does that mean? That means that your fallen humanity, your body, your mind has desires. It has things that it's pulled toward, and they are not always good, are they? Have you ever really, really, really wanted to say something that you knew you shouldn't say? You know why you want to say that? Because you have a fallen mind. Okay? I do it too. Every single one of us. Whenever we, you have a desire to do something, say something, go somewhere that is not holy, that is not good, and you know it's good, that is because you, we all have messed up minds and bodies that are infected by what this thing is called sin. But Paul is saying, when you have put on Christ, that has covered up the old you. That has consumed the old you. And you now do not have to make any provisions for that flesh. You have the power through Jesus Christ to tell your flesh, no. I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to Jesus Christ. When somebody has put on Christ, at that moment, they join the community of believers in Jesus Christ. And their identity as a follower of Jesus trumps whoever or whatever they were before for ourselves this first one i want to think of this first point in this sermon as concerned just about me myself and i not as in the pastor but as in before you ever think about how this is going to affect other people stop for just a second and think about how this is going to affect you okay when you come to jesus christ His identity, His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness consumes everything else that you were before you came to Him. That identity takes over everything else. It even takes over the identity sinner. Alright, I understand what we mean when we say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Let me cautiously, because I understand what you mean when you say that, and I agree with you. But if you have come to Christ, your identity before God is no longer that of sinner. I'm not saying you don't still sin. I'm saying your identity before God, after you have come to Christ, is no longer that of sinner. It is saint, because Jesus has covered up the sinner identity that you had before. It's gone. Okay? You can be a saint that temporarily acts unnaturally by sinning, but you are no longer a sinner whose sin is natural. Does that make sense? Your identity has been consumed by Christ that you have put on. This means when you look in the mirror and Satan starts beating you in the face with that thing you did or that thing you said or that thing you thought. Well, you're just a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You're just this. You're this. You're this. You, 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 you. You're the problem. You're the problem. Do you know what God sees when he looks at you after you put on Christ? Spotlessness perfection why because God's not looking just at you anymore he's looking at his son in you you put on Christ Jesus covers you up that way too often we live just in flat out dejected depressed defeat because we we believe what Satan has to say And we've been doing this ever since the garden, haven't we? Satan's persuasive. He's really believable. And he's the least person you should least believe in the cosmos. Let me tell you something, dear Christian. If Christ has saved you, Satan knows good and well he can't have you. He can't. He's lost you forever. So you know what he wants to do to you? He wants to neutralize your effect for the kingdom. He wants to neutralize your joy. He wants to neutralize your witness. He wants to keep you on the sidelines because you don't feel qualified. You don't feel like you should. You don't feel equipped. You don't feel good enough to get out there and get on the field for Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie literally from the pit of hell. If you have put on Christ, then you're you're right. You're not qualified, but he is. And he has consumed the unqualified you. Satan is accusing someone who before God no longer exists. The old you died when you came to Christ. Satan can accuse the old me all he wants, but that old me is dead. If you've come to Christ, your identity is now, I'm a child of God. I'm a saint. And it's not arrogant to say so, because anybody who is a child of God, who is a saint, who is put on Christ, knows good and well that we're not perfect in ourselves. We won't hide that fact. We had to come to that conclusion to know we needed to come to Jesus. We're dependent on the mercy of God. We're dependent on the grace of God. But I'm also not going to downplay the work that God has done. And I will tell you proudly that I'm I'm a son of God. If you've put on Christ, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You are heavenly royalty. Everybody's obsessed with this royal baby in England getting born this year. His, his name's Louis, bless his heart. He's going to have all kinds of fun at school. His name's Louis. I saw some people said they're excited that he's going to be named King Louis because it reminds them of the Jungle Book, because there was that orangutan named King Louis. And so if he ever gets to be king, everybody's going to be singing Jungle Book music. And I'm like, oh, that's cute. But you know what? I know a king that's been having children born to him for thousands of years. And one day, your royalty, if you're in Christ, is going to matter a whole lot more than Louis. You are a child of the king and you should not let Satan convince you otherwise. If you've come to Christ. If you haven't come to Christ, you haven't put on Christ, you can still become a child of the king. You can, you can be adopted into the family today. It's a free gift offered to you. But everybody who comes to Christ receives the same life. That you get that new you. You get that new beginning. You get that fresh start in Jesus Christ. That you can have that. So focus that one on you. But second, I want you to see that everyone who comes to Christ receives an equal standing. This is where we're going to fan this out outside of ourselves. See, it's really easy to look in the mirror and say... Once you get that, it's really easy to look in the mirror and say, I am a child of God. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I am a child of the King. I am pure. I am spotless. I am forgiven. I am justified. Glory to God. I have freedom to go before my Father in peace. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to say? But when we, when we walk outside our door... And Joe from two houses down cuts us off in traffic. Are you willing to show Joe from two doors down the same deference that Jesus showed you? Because Paul says in verse 28, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, nor Baptist, nor Methodist, nor black, nor white, nor citizen, nor non-citizen, nor rich, nor poor, nor nuclear family, nor single parent, nor single mom, nor single dad. You see what I'm saying? That here's what happens is that there are three separate distinctions that Paul is mentioning here. Jew or Greek is an ethnic or national distinction. Okay? Yes, there were religious differences between the two, but they were also different races. Different cultures. They ate different food. They spoke different languages. They came from different parts of the world. They lived different kinds of lives. Slave nor free is socioeconomic or class distinctions. Then in the Roman Empire, there were still slaves who were held as property. And then male nor female, I do want to pause on this one. Because Paul is not saying there's no such thing between men and women now that Jesus has got here. Okay? He's not saying that. If you actually look at this in Greek, this actually doesn't use the word nor between them like it does in English. Our translators just kind of kept rolling with it. In Greek it actually comes out saying there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free nor male and female. What Paul is saying that as far as how one is saved, as far as how one God views one who has come to Christ, he does not view men as women, men or women as being more or less privileged before him. That God looks at a saved woman with the exact same status as a saved man, and so should the church. Do you know that a sister in Christ could rebuke me just as easily as a brother in Christ could, and she would have the exact same standing before God? See, here's the thing is that we are very quick to accept God's meritless favor of us. But we are never less like God than when we refuse to extend that same grace to other people who are unlike us really in any way whatsoever. This doesn't mean that Jews stopped being Jews, that Greeks stopped being Greeks, that this doesn't mean that slave and free immediately disintegrated in the Roman Empire, and this doesn't mean that men ceased to be women. Men or women ceased to be women. It did, however, mean that Christians recognized each other first with the dignity of being a son or daughter of God and treat them that way over and against all other distinctions. In fact, the way that we treat other distinctions should be informed by that first one. I'm going to share a mind-blowing factoid with some of you that I didn't even think about until before church started. And I was like, oh, huh, this is really interesting that this would come up in conversation the day that I'm going to preach this message. I graduated high school in the ancient year of 2007. I went to my first prom in 2006. That 2006, the year of our Lord, 2006, MMVI, if you want Roman numerals, 2006, my high school had its first integrated prom. At the time we did, there was only one other high school in our state. Yeah, it got real real in here real quick, didn't it? (laughs) Drove the kids nuts. It was the parents. 2006. At the time this happened, there was only one other high school in the state of Georgia that still had. They didn't just have two problems, they had three. They had a black prom, a white prom, and a Hispanic prom. And for the life of us, we kids didn't understand it. That it was fine to go to school together, it was fine to eat together, it was fine to play sports together. But Lord help, if we were going to go to prom together, ooh. And what was so confusing to all of us is that these parents were all in church on Sunday morning. And we would sing about how we put on Christ and we would read our Bible and oh we are a child of the King, but you know what? Apparently the children of the King can't be together. And y'all, I know it's a hot button topic, but this is 2018. If we as Christians can't open our Bible and see that the blood of Jesus... There is one color that matters. That's red. The blood of Jesus has been spilt so that every other one doesn't matter. That when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek... Neither slave nor free. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 3, 5-7. through 7. He says he is a Jew. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. He says, yes, I have the ethnic identity of a Jew. I have the previous religious identity of a Jew. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, I will push all of that aside for Him. He is more than I was. But in Acts chapter 21, 39, Paul says... Yeah, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. that There is nothing wrong with being who God made you to be. But there is a whole lot wrong with saying who God made you to be is better or more important than who God made somebody else to be. And we as Christians have to let God's Word inform the way we view and treat other people over and above the way that maybe our culture has taught us to. As far as slave and free are concerned, listen to Philemon, verses 15 through 17. Uh, If you don't know the story of the book of Philemon... Philemon was a slave who had run away from a man named Onesimus and ran away and ran into Paul and got saved. And Onesimus came to, the, and Philemon came to the conclusion that I have wronged my master because legally he said I shouldn't have run away from him. So he went back and Paul wrote him a letter. And this is what Paul said. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A brother, a beloved brother, especially to me, but not how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Would Onesimus have received the Apostle Paul and treat him like a slave? No. So what Paul effectively says to Onesimus is when this man came back to you, you should no longer see him as a lower class than you. You should no longer see him as a piece of property. You should no longer see him as an instrument for personal gain. You should see him as someone valuable enough that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for him. And when you receive him, you ought to receive him in no less a fashion than you would receive me. Because his identity in Jesus Christ trumps every other part of his identity. It's no shock then that everywhere the Bible has been accurately read and taught throughout history, the institution of slavery and class distinction seems to collapse. Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. I'm talking about men versus women. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to see and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters, daughters, who prophesied. If the Holy Spirit is willing to give the gift of prophecy to girls, I don't say girls as in girls versus boys, I say it as in like younger girls. Not even adult women, younger girls who had come to Christ. There is no place in the church for me to say a woman is less valuable than a man or should be less listened to than a man. Here's the upshot of this. Here's the application. Let me ask you a question Do we live in a world? That is hypercharged and hypersensitive to divisions of race and gender. We do. And it gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? Sometimes it gets uncomfortable even just to talk about it. But let me tell you who I'm in bondage to I'm in bondage to this book, because I'm in bondage to its author, God. And because I am His servant, when He speaks, I speak. And if you've been with us, you know we've been going through Galatians chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And when we encounter verse 28, we encounter this topic. Which means, even though it's uncomfortable, that is our message. That is what God intends us to hear. And it is very clear in this passage that if any group of people, if any community on the face of the earth ought to love each other, it ought to be those who have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Ought it not? That we ought to love people Regardless of their skin color, we ought to love people regardless of their language. We ought to love people regardless of their nationality. We ought to love people regardless of whatever, regardless of how much money they have in the bank, regardless of what kind of clothes they're able to wear. That the blood of Jesus Christ, those who have put on Christ, that trumps every other identity. So here's your application on that second point. Guys, we are... if, If you consider yourself a Christian, Christian just means little Christ, right? That's what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. If we consider ourselves Christians, which means little Christ, ought we be concerned with sharing Christ's opinions on things. That people should be able to see the way we act and we respond and we speak and they should be able to infer from that that that's the way Jesus would act or respond or speak. How many of y'all are familiar with the name Mahatma Gandhi? Ever heard that name? That name haunts me. I'll tell you why. That Mahatma Gandhi, during the height of his influence, had made a trip to, I think it was South Africa, I was told. And he had heard the message of Jesus, and it intrigued him. And he was going to go to a Christian house of worship. One Sunday to hear about this Christ whose message of peace and forgiveness and grace seemed to be exactly what he thought was the solution to so many problems in his own country and the rest of the world. So he wanted to go hear about this Christ. So he goes to this church and he's as he's walking up the steps to go in a couple of men who I think were I think afterwards found out were deacons walked out and stood in front of the door and they said, what are you looking for? I wanted to come hear the, hear the one who would speak. This isn't a church for your kind. You need to go find somewhere else. Gandhi left and never expressed curiosity in Christianity again. When asked about it, he said, "Oh, I, I, I love your Jesus. I, I think your Jesus is great. It's, it's not your Christ I have a problem with. It's your Christians. They're nothing like your Christ. You know that in India today people still venerate Mahatma Gandhi? that they still look up to him as, I want to be like him. Could you imagine if that church had received Mahatma Gandhi that day? Could you imagine if he had received the gospel? Could you imagine if he had become a Christian and his life had been given to Christ? Can you imagine how many people would have looked at him and have said, if Jesus is good enough for Gandhi, then he must be good enough for me? Could you imagine what the world would be like today? If Christ's blood is good enough for someone else, for it, for, for, if someone is valuable enough for Jesus to shed his blood for them, ought they not be valuable enough for us?